Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast by Opus Partners. I'm your host, Stephen Knight. I'm Andrew Nicol. And to the show, we've got another case study Sunday and we are so pleased to be joined by Jeremy Field, who's in with us at the Christchurch office. How are you going, Jeremy? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Did I recognise you from some famous property publication? Yep, thank you. Andrew? Yeah, best thing is, Jeremy has just been the main feature in the New Zealand Property Investor magazine. It is an awesome story, so we thought we'd get him on the show. But if you don't already subscribe to NZ Property Investor Mag, what are you doing? You've got to take out your subscription. It's one of the magazines we own here at the Opus Group. And so, Jeremy, tell us a bit about your background and some of the early challenges that you had. So growing up, I think like a lot of property investors now, I was sort of in that aura, start off to life, you know, broken family, only child. My grandmother and my mother raised me in a house in Sockburn, which isn't known as a high-end area in Christchurch. Was when you're living in Waltham, (laughs) but go on. And so basically, they were very working-class people. They were very staunch Labour supporters. We had a a sign on the fence that said, our dog bites national voters. (laughs) um, from, From the start, it was very much a mindset in our house of rich people are greedy. You don't want to be like that. And that's probably putting it nicely. And then sort of growing up, my mother was sort of on the sickness benefit on and off. She had few injuries, few probably undiagnosed mental health issues, we could say. Issues with a bottle. <laughs> yeah, so she sort of was a wee bit on and off and my father wasn't there. My grandmother, luckily, was a sort of ex-school teacher, so she was pretty much the disciplinarian in the house. And yeah, we were kind of just sort of scraping by. They did own the house that we lived in, which was kind of a rare luxury for someone in our sort of situation. But they sort of owned it half together. My grandmother, when I was born, sort of allowed my mother to buy into the house so I'd have a stable sort of place to live growing up. And Jeremy, in the magazine article, you talk about that you had a couple of troubles at school. Yeah, so when I was 12, I had a pretty bad accident and I was trapped underneath a truck when I was riding my bike. How do you get trapped underneath a truck? Not being a very skilled Bicycle rider, probably. Oh. That was part of it. So I had a pretty bad injury there. So I basically degloved the top of my foot, broke every bone underneath my shin, dislocated all my toes. You're yeah. going to show us your foot after the podcast <laughs> recording? How much are you going to give me? <laughs> Do you give know me what? a job and we're I, off. Okay? I didn't get a gasp from you. Do you know what degloving is? Absolutely not. It's when all the skin comes off as if it was a glove. Yeah, so oh. imagine, so you imagine, imagine all your little bones poking out. Yeah, okay. We're good now? We're still good? <laughs> you okay, Ed? Do you want a minute? Like and subscribe for more <laughs> medical <laughs> advice. Um, <laughs> and so you had that bad accident. Yeah. What, what was the impact of that in your schooling years? So obviously, like, I was in hospital for three or four weeks. I was in a wheelchair for a period of time. I had to learn to walk again. And then that was the last year of primary school. Then went to a new high school. That was a little bit challenging being through that and going somewhere new, people aren't always the nicest when mm. you're 12, 13. Mm. And then maybe a year later, I had a burst appendix and was off school for another month, lost 11 kilograms. That was pretty Holy yeah, no. I, I was very close to dying at that time. And then sort of went into a bit of a black hole where I didn't really want to leave the house for a long period of time and, and sort of the police had to get involved. So I missed more of high school than I attended. I uh, finished up high school when I was 16 without any NCA education. And so you're going through a bit of a rough time, but it was your cousin who helped you out a bit. So yeah, my cousin was my closest family member. He was a bit of rough around the edges and he spent a lot of time living with us around my mid-teens. And so him, him and probably my best friend were the two people that kind of kept me on the straight and narrow at that time, which, yeah, I'm obviously eternally grateful to both of them for. And what did they say to you? They were both very 
active and, and sort of pushed forward with everything that they always did, very motivated. It, it was sort of hard when you're looking at people that are kind of already doing a lot better than you. So it was just a, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty tough time. Do they come from a similar financial background yeah, yeah, as absolutely. you guys? Yeah, as, as so you, sorry. At primary school, I went to Avonhead Primary School, which is yep. quite nice primary school and everyone there was sort of middle class and to me at the time middle class was rich yeah i look at middle class people and i thought well you live in a, a new house or you know you've got two parents that's pretty sweet yeah um, <laughs> so yeah my best friend was sort of state house growing up family of off the top of my head eight eight or nine kids solo mum his father passed away early so there's a lot of my friends were in a sort of similar group as we hit that high school age we kind of you bond together with those sort of people and my cousin was sort of living at my mum's house I was getting kicked out because my mother and I didn't have a good relationship. So there was times that I was sort of sleeping in my car at friends' houses or on couches or girlfriends' houses, you know, kind of wherever I could be. But your cousin said to you, Jeremy, you're smarter than you think you are. Yeah, he, he was a little bit envious because he was a bit dyslexic. So he kind of told me I kind of needed to get a grip, give me a bit of hard time. I used to get into some Barneys. But when you're struggling, you don't look at the positive, do you, you know? But but he he pointed out to you that obviously that you had greater potential than you were giving yourself the ability to prove at that stage. Absolutely. I was wasting a lot of time feeling sorry for myself, which has sort of been one of the sort of driving factors to turn around. You know, I you get into a point when you're like that where you just think about all the things you can't do. Yes. So changing that to, you know, what can I still do has been sort of one of the driving factors for me to get to where I am today. And so, then what pushed you to start investing in property and start taking life more seriously? Well, he passed away when I was 16. He was in an accident with a truck, which is majorly ironic. Terrible <laughs> we, family yeah, luck when it comes to trucks. Surely it's not a genetic thing, but maybe it is. So, yeah, he was in an accident. He got killed. And that kind of threw me into a bit of a world like life is very, very short. You need to sort of at least do something. You know, I was not really doing anything, just kind of floating around looking for trouble more than anything. And he was living at my mother's house when he died. So she took that really hard and that sort of deteriorated our relationship a little bit further. But yeah, that sort of got me into working full time. And that when I started working, I sort of realized, oh, you know, there are people less intelligent than I am doing a lot better than I am. Maybe I need to take some accountability and, and sort of do something about my situation. So you're 19 years old, you've got no qualifications, your best friend and mentor and person you look up to unfortunately has passed on. So what do you do next? So I was 16 when he died, sort of 16, 17 I started working full time, got an apprenticeship and then I started having a regular income, to which was a bit foreign to me. Growing up with someone who's on the benefit as your parent, you kind of go through that first initial stage of I've got money, let's buy really dumb stuff to look cool which I sort of got to a point where I, I just sat there one night and and wrote down a, bit, a bunch of goals and just thought to myself you know I could be doing a lot better with what I have right now what should I do and I just set out sort of a five-year map and went to Whitcalls and bought two books because I had no idea how to make money one of them was the Graham Fowler book the 10 property investor millionaires or something 10 properties in 10 years or something like no that? no that's nah. the other one that's the 20 oh. The, the other yeah. one's the real, uh, the real estate investors' secrets of yeah, yeah, and they've got all the cars on the front. And you know, I was nineteen, twenty, and I saw the cars, and I was like, "Oh, there's a Lamborghini. That looks pretty cool." So that, that's <laughs> the one where they interview a lot of property yeah, exactly. investors. That's the one. They do, it's basically a book of case studies. Oh, so yeah. there was that one, and I bought a Warren Buffett book, <laughs> and I, I, I read both of them, and I was like, "Oh, she is. That doesn't seem that interesting. Property seems attainable. It's tangible, and that sort of piqued my interest. And also, there was a person in that book who was in the same industry I was doing, which was printing, who owned a Lamborghini. 
and was a printer. And I thought, well, that's pretty sweet. Maybe I could have a crack at that. And so I knew my grandfather on my father's side had invested in property and done pretty well. I didn't really have a relationship with him at the time. So I basically just started reading books. I read the Bob Jones book and sort of got into the, the cliche books and also a lot of mindset books at the time too to try and sort of rewire my brain. What was the most influential mindset book? Because we don't talk a lot about that on the podcast. What was the one that had the biggest impact for you? Do you remember? When I was young, I would probably say the seven habits of highly effective people. Highly effective people. That's it. Just because it was talking about sort of shifting your paradigms and I hadn't really understood what that was at the time. And it sort of made me really self-aware of the way I was thinking about things wasn't the way that I should be thinking about things. And that just because of your circumstances, you can still shift and change. Like you're never locked down to that one place. And so you ended up buying your first rental. Tell us about that. So first of all, I bought it into my mother's house with my grandma because my their relationship had completely dropped off. Yes. Bought into there then, <laughs> which was a shocking idea in hindsight because my mother and my relationship was already terrible, but it was to help my mum out and then bought her out of her house a couple of years later. And straight away, I'd met a friend who was a property investor and realised that I had enough equity that I could probably do something, albeit pretty little. So we went to your mate, Tony Mounts. Mm-hmm. And um, he said to me, look, you can do something. You can't do a hell of a lot. There's one place that's on the, the up and that's in Vicargo. So... I Tony said that. <laughs> Tony said that. That was <laughs> right when it was starting to heat up. So I, I owe Tony a lot for that because I managed to find a, an old character home that was divided into three one-bedroom units. But you're living in Christchurch, so how did you do that? A little bit of ignorance. It was all remote, sight unseen. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, It was especially for a 100-year-old house, it was an interesting one. But I, I basically got it under the offer, got the builder's report, and, and I said, well, what do I know as a – I was 26 at the time roughly – I just said, so as a, you know, what do I know about houses that would outweigh what this builder can tell me? Mm. So I put a lot of faith in a builder's report. Yeah. And he said to me, look, you're going to need some maintenance at some point, but the, the structure is solid yeah. and, you know, it's a good property. So was it already converted at the time that you'd purchased it? You didn't have to do that yourself? No, it was already converted. In hindsight, I don't know how well converted or how legally converted it probably <laughs> is. But since then, I've sort of stripped that out and sort of, Going to renovate that back into a, we're actually going to add an extra bedroom to one of the units. So make that a, a two, a one, and a one. At the moment, it's completely stripped out. We're waiting for windows to arrive and then do a, a really large-scale renovation on that property. And so how many properties have you got now, mate? So I'm sitting at four rentals and an owner-occupier. That's great. I had another property, which I did sell due to interest deductibility being rolled back, interest rates picking up. And it just not being a suitable rental. It was my that was my old owner occupier. Yeah, and how old are you now? Thirty-four. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. That yeah. and it, it just kind of shows you that there still is opportunity here in New Zealand. That somebody leaves school has a really rough time, if we can say that. You know, a couple of things go wrong for you, quite consequential things, and that fifteen years later. You know, there's a time you had five rental properties plus your owner occupier, six properties at you know 33, 32. You're in the what top one percent. That's amazing. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story, and, and a lot of motivation for us all. And Jeremy, your mum passed in the end, and that had an impact on your portfolio. Tell us about that. Yeah, so she passed away at the beginning of 2020. I'd bought my second rental, and I was renovating it. She had cancer, so she was living in Waimati. I was travelling between Christchurch and Waimati while I was renovating the property. Then she died. I. And here I was her only child, 
So she hadn't done a will, which was oh, <laughs> a real oh, treat at the time. So then you go into test date, yep. Yeah, 100%. So I'm sitting on her house for six months and COVID hits at the same time. So that's the start of COVID. I finished my renovation project luckily just before that and got that rented out. So then I inherited her property. I'd taken a loan to do some of the work on my Invercargill property, which I then ended up using to renovate her property to a better standard before I sold it to a first home buyer. At the time, I had enough equity that I could have bought one more rental. Uh, and everybody was saying, you know, you should just pay down your own mortgage when you get that money. I was left with about $150,000 after I paid off all of her debts and, and stuff like that. And so I bought a, my second rental, uh, third rental, sorry, which was in Bromley. Nice, you know, high-end area of, of Bromley. <laughs> and did a renovation on that property and bought a townhouse in Waltham pretty much back-to-back. The interesting thing here is this is a 15-year story, right? It could seem like, you know, you kind of bought five properties in five minutes because that's what we've explained to them. Yeah. But it starts out when you're 19 and you buy your mum's share of the house and that's the start. Yeah. And then it gets into you buy the whole of thing and then a couple of years later or pretty quickly you buy an Invercargill. Then there's a long period where you're renovating your mum's place and then you acquire that property and you sell and you buy two more. You know, it really takes time. And so a lot of people will look at an investor like yourself and think, how do I get five properties in five minutes or, you know, five properties in five months. Well, that's usually not the way it works. It's slow. It happens over time. And, you know, how long was the time between when you bought the Invercargill place and you bought the next property? I bought the Invercargill place in 2016 and I bought the next one in 2019. I I was always big on renting out as many bedrooms in my house that I could because I never made more than the median wage in New Zealand. Like I wasn't on good money. I was aware of that. I always knew servicing would be my problem. So I always bought for cash flow because my goal was to get out of that job as quickly as possible. And then I moved into personal training and then I went back to personal training and printing. So I was working sort of 60 hours a week plus renting out the rooms in my house just to build that portfolio as quickly as I could, which was obviously, it was going to be a short-term pain. Yeah, that shortcut to Rich's personal training, eh? <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just, to, just to be clear, personal training. Uh, that, uh, I'm glad you laughed at that joke because obviously <laughs> it's a tough gig and actually not the most lucrative. No, it wasn't. And, and that was it. You know, I wasn't uh, the most highly qualified in any industry. Once I left printing, it was always, oh, what would I enjoy doing? And that was personal training. I liked helping people. And it wasn't lucrative enough to get me that second rental. And that's why I changed back to the two careers at the same time. And that was really, really hard. I was up at 5.30 in the morning to go to my first job. And sometimes I'd finish personal training at 8 p.m. at night. And I think this is uh, the the point you are making before, is there's no shortcut to success. Like you you have to grind and grind and grind and grind and take time. That's how you get successful. Well, even if we come back to what you started this podcast with, which is that your view of people who had some assets was, you know, it was pretty negative, you know, and now, you, you know, you kind of sit here thinking, oh, Jeremy Field, that greedy property investor who <laughs> gets up at 5.30 in the morning to do one job, finishes at 8pm at night on a second job just so he can buy another rental property to get ahead. And you think, isn't that a beautiful thing when you actually think about it? That's a lot of hard work there. Yeah, when deductibility was taken away from us, that was a real kick in the guts for me personally, because there was such a narrative around property investors are doing all this harm and and I was thinking man I just I just don't want to be broke at the time I was like I don't want a Lamborghini and a flash house or anything like that but it was just I don't want to live and raise kids the way I was raised and so to hear that was 
pretty tough. Yeah, hearing all those phrases like the tax loophole that we were exploiting, like that was, like you say, kicking the guts for people who probably aren't making much money in, from their portfolio from a day-to-day basis. I guarantee you weren't making much money. It was all probably just going straight back into it. Yeah, 100%. I was, I was paying more yeah. than half of my income back into property yeah. and, rent, and living with you know, three yeah. boarders. You know, yeah. not, not many people at 30 want to be renting their house out to other people. And what's one thing that you've learned that you'd like other investors to know? What would be your advice for them? Probably my favorite saying in property is, well, I don't even think it's in property, but if you give me 24 hours to cut down a tree, I'll spend 23 sharpening the axe. And I think that's, it can be taken a couple of different ways, but the way I look at it is you're not always ready to buy a property, but that doesn't stop you from learning or improving your position to get ready to buy that property. And, and always try and buy with that next property in mind. Those are the sort of key things for me. It was always a really tight position for me to buy a property. I was very scraping and by the... Skinning your teeth. Yeah, exactly. And I know one place you're sharing your story with everyone is obviously on your Instagram. Just remind us of what that handle is. That's the no BS Kiwi property guy. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Jerry, for coming on the show and sharing your story. We're going to wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And of course, if you want to meet us in person, Andrew and myself, we're going to be in Auckland Christchurch in Wellington, end of October, start of November. Uh, just go to opuspartners.co.nz slash tickets, or the link's down in the show notes. Bird to Bird special still on sale. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Steve McKnight. I'm Andrew Nicole. We're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.